Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to part two of the Changes Mother Mother mini-series with me, Annie Mack. I am talking to four different authors about some of the bigger themes that I circled around in my first novel, Mother Mother. Last week was Francisco Garcia on Missing People. This week, it's all about single parenthood and becoming a mother. Sophie Haywood's memoir, The Hungover Games, came out last year. It's her first book, and it took her a pretty long time to write. The reason why it took so long is simple. It's a very personal story, and for a long time she was worried what the consequences might be of telling it. Sophie was living in LA as a showbiz journalist. You might have seen her bylines in The Guardian, The Times, Elle. She's interviewed loads of really big actresses and actors. And she was happily avoiding most of the responsibilities of adulthood when a doctor told her she was unable to have children. She then immediately, accidentally became pregnant by a man who really didn't want to have a child and kind of watched as her life reshaped itself around the imminent arrival of this strange new thing, a child she had been told would never exist. The Hungover Games is an outrageously funny book about something that didn't feel at all funny at the time. But apart from being funny, it's poignant, it's tender and overflowing with a very specific type of intense love. Now, Mother Mother also hinges around the seismic shock of an unplanned pregnancy. Mary has her son TJ when she's still a teenager. The circumstances are, of course, very different, but both books really do look at what it means to be a mother and the way that completely recalibrates your perspective, as well as the difficulties, but also the wonders and delights of bringing up a child alone outside of the context of a nuclear family, which the world so often tells us is the only way to make a happy kid. This is a conversation all about the cliches, the myths, the outright lies that get fed to women about motherhood. It's about taking control of your own body, your own story, and basically asking anyone who has a problem with that to kindly jog on. Let's do it. Let's invite Sophie Haywood to this second episode of Changes the Mother Mother series. Sophie Haywood, hello and welcome to this very special edition of Changes. Hello, Annie. Ah, how are you? <laughs> I'm really excited to be on your podcast. Yeah, I'm excited for you to be on here too. Like, I feel like having read your book nearly a year ago, or just under a year ago when it dropped, that I've had so many questions and so many things to talk to you about it. So this is just a wonderful opportunity. And also, we know each other and we like each other. And it's always we nice do. to have a natter anyway, isn't it? <laughs> and I don't want to make this a lovey fest, but I've just read your book, Mother Aww. Mother, which is so tender and sweet and has sort of stayed with me in my chest. You called it a lyrical thriller and I was like, boom, wow, God, can someone write that down? That's incredible. I will will write that down. But yeah, I was really chuffed that you read it and you enjoyed it. And there's themes of that that are kind of weirdly in parallel with the hungover games that I wanted to explore 
in our conversation today. But first of all, let's just talk about the fact that the book, as I said, came out July 2020. You've had nearly a year to digest how it feels to have a book in the world, to be like a published yes. author. How is it now? Well, what was funny at the time it came out or earlier last year, obviously the pandemic hit and every type of industry was reassessing how to go ahead. And in publishing, lots of books that were meant to be summer titles were being put back maybe till the autumn or till the next year. And I was watching announcement week after week. Oh, this book that's been planned is now being put back. And I was thinking, well... And my editor's going to put my book back. And at first I was thinking, don't do it. Then after a while I was thinking, well, if everyone else's book needs putting back, I think mine does as well. And then they just they just held tight. They were just like, nah, let's do it. And I'm so glad they did because people were stuck at home, you know, wanting to read or people were able to travel. There was a little bit last summer where some people did get yeah. a holiday. Yeah. But again, they weren't on holiday sort of going to nightclubs, raving. There wasn't much when they got there. So it was actually a lovely time to release a book. And everyone's had the time to sort of message me and get back to me, you know, random strangers who were maybe feeling a little bit more emotional and sensitive than we used to. You know, during the pandemic, everyone was living quite close to the surface or quite close to the edge. And people were really sort of pouring out their feelings. And it turned out to be a really touching time to release a book. So I've just been amazed that, you know, every day I look at Instagram and I think because Instagram is just a place, you know, where people feel safe sort of messaging someone they don't know. Every day there's people writing saying, oh, I read your book and I didn't think I'd like it because I haven't had a kid or that's not for me, but X, Y and Z. And um, it's just been really lovely. And all the things I feared happening, because it's quite an exposing book, it's first person, it's memoir, it's things that happened in my private life. And um, all the sort of terrible things I thought would happen haven't happened. (laughs) So that's been... So what were the terrible things you thought would happen? What were you catastrophizing about? Well... You know, I didn't think my family would like it. You know, it's about having a kid with someone. Well, the start of it is that I, you know, I get pregnant by someone who desperately was against that and and left pretty sharpish. So it's about becoming a mother on my own. You know, it brings up sensitive issues possibly for other people more than for me. And I also thought, you know, my daughter one day might read this. There were so many people in my head who I thought won't like this. And also I thought maybe reviewers, you know, I mean, it's a thrill to get reviewed at all. Not all books do. But when I heard that the Daily Mail had reviewed it, I was like, well, they're going to call me a slag. (laughs) And what did they say about it? They were really nice because, you know, just to explain a bit more to people who don't know what I'm talking about. The book is about, you know, I'd never settled down in a relationship. I was in my 30s, sort of living the high life in Los Angeles where I was working with celebrities and I was going to parties and, you know, I go from that rapidly into motherhood and I thought the male would be like, well, you know, she's no better than she ought to be, that poor child. And um, they were lovely. Their only complaint was that they they thought there were too many celebrities in it. Wow. Which from the people who make the sidebar of shine. That's something. The sidebar of shame. Wow. But, um, you know, maybe I was lucky that, you know, there is a bit of a zeitgeist for women's publishing and women talking about their sex lives and motherhood in alternative ways. So perhaps I was very lucky with the timing, but it's just been such a relief, Annie. Good, because it was a long time coming. How many years from beginning to end did it take for this book to go from being in your head to being published? So I first talked to an agent about doing it when my daughter was about two and she turns 10 this year. So that does feel like a long time and in the story it's mainly from sort of pregnancy to the first 
couple of years of her life. You, you get a bit when she's more like five, but it really stops by about five. So I guess it was about five years. Yeah. And I kept thinking, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I, and I had interest because I'd been writing in The Guardian. I'd written a column that was quite often about being a single mum and this sort of bittersweet experiences of what it's like when you've had this totally accidental baby and you were not someone in a marriage, in a settled, you know, you didn't know what you were doing and suddenly you're someone's mum. So I had written about that and I knew there was interest from publishers, but I kept thinking, oh, you know, the catastrophizing, like you say, can't do it, can't do it. And I battled with those voices for years and I sort of felt this hum of the book and I wonder if you had that as well that the book sort of wouldn't go away and it was sort of in me and in me and felt it humming for about three years and finally I thought you know I'm avoiding writing this to save the imaginary feelings of people who are apparently upset by something that doesn't exist you know like how far am I going to go in this imaginary protection of other people's lives well I mean maybe they don't even care you know so what changed what change happened in your life that meant this book was written? Like, was there a turning point? You say you're writing for The Guardian, but was there an actual catalyst? Was there a conversation? Was there, did something happen that you were like, fuck it, I just have to get it out? I think I gave it five years. I think I finally thought my daughter turned five and her age is quite sort of synced with mine. So when she turned five, I turned 40. And I thought, you know what, this is just ridiculous when when am I going to stop apologizing for existing you know when am I going to stop feeling guilty for things that I haven't done you know if not at 40 and if I can't write about having a baby when the baby's five then when can I so I think sometimes those numbers are a bit scary to us but they're they're a catalyst for change I I wonder like when you okay so when I wrote the book, right? What I learned along the way is that every time I wrote a draft, I would have to put it in a drawer and leave it alone for a month or six weeks and then take it out and read it. And that would give me enough kind of distance from it to be able to see it critically and see it as other people would see it, get this fresh perspective, yeah. right? Yeah. How was it for you when you were reading your story back? Because it is your story. So it's just it's the idea of this, your kind of debut big book in the world being the story of your life and how that's kind of how you dealt with the relationship between looking at it as a story that other people would consume, looking at your life as a narrative, as an arc, like all of that. How did you marry those two things, the idea of a saleable book and your life as it happened? I mean, it's enough to sense you completely deranged, Annie. It, it is... Uh, you know, I'm sort of glad you've noticed because um, I suppose there's a temptation to see first person writing. And my voice can be quite chatty, you know, as sort of possibly the easy way out in literary terms. You know, it's it's like writing a diary. It's like chatting to a friend. And of course, it's not because there's such a balance to strike and there's so much at stake. And those are real people whose names you might have changed, but they may find themselves. I had to strike a balance between you sort of want to defend yourself especially if you've done if you have to admit to something that you now think is immoral but you you can't sort of be your own judge and jury you have to you have to let it be it's a really tricky thing you have to firstly I was very big on telling the truth and I think there's a temptation with a lot of memoir and I was a bit surprised actually I spoke to other memoirists who I know who were like oh no just tidy that bit up just skim over oh say that happened in the other order if it's not working and I was a bit naive I was like what but it's my truth 
it's bad enough that I'm putting some of this stuff in. If I know that it's dishonest, that I can't live with myself. Like, no, Mm. game over. So it's all true the way I remember it. Um, It is very hard to write about yourself. Also, I wanted the book to be funny. My writing's always quite upbeat and, you know, I like to think it's quite fun. And some of the experiences I was writing about were, were really painful. So... It's really interesting, isn't it? Are you sort of making a clown of yourself? Are you, you know, I remember my parents, one of their fears when they sort of got wind of what I was doing, they were like, we don't want people to think your life's a comedy. You know, we don't want people to think your life's a joke. And that was obviously painful for them, but I don't think that's how good comic writing, well, (laughs) not saying that's what I achieve, but, you know, that's not how good comic writing works, is it? You're not laughing at somebody. It's not slapstick. You're... It's their humanity coming through. So talking about the humour, because as you say, it runs through the book as a thread. But there is moments where you are vulnerable, where you don't put humour in because at the time it's clearly not funny for you. Was that, again, was that just how you wrote it? Like you, you didn't have to take the humour out or was there, was there kind of consideration and thought put into how you would write those vulnerable bits? And was it difficult for you? To be quite honest, and I don't think I've told anyone this, I wrote an entire first draft, which nearly all went in the bin because it was so sad and it sounded I mean I love a really juicy sad book but it sounded a bit sort of Tom York's sixth form poetry like it was really kind of miserable and I realized at the end of it and my editor sort of said I knew you'd do this she said I think you just needed to get that out of your system because what's happened is you did have a child in this tricky situation you have been a single mum for all these years and you haven't really had a chance to sort of, you know, exercise that and go, you know what, this has been really, really hard. hard yeah. So I think I sort of exercised all the bad feelings that I'd never really said to anyone and got them all down. And at first when they said, you know, you need to do this again, I was a bit like, how dare you? This is this is what's happened to me. You're suppressing women's voices. And then I got home and read it through and I was like, oh no, I see what they mean. This is actually like just, it didn't even make any sense, Annie. It was like sort of voices drifting in and out. I mean, it just... It just but brave move to start all over again. Like credit to you for that. I, I'm in awe of someone that can put that much time into something and then be like, it's just not right and move aside and keep going. Like, yeah. Wow. But I think I think this book is only funny because I think it is, you know, for me, quite a bittersweet story. Oh, sure. I think it's only funny because I sort of dealt with the pain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't want to write a lie. I didn't want to publish a book saying, "Yeah, just have a kid with someone who doesn't want to have a kid with you." You know, it's all fine. Of course, it's not fine. And I wanted to do that justice in the book, so that's why I do. There are those painful moments in it, but I didn't want them to dominate. Let's go to one of those now because it's a nice springboard to talk about another thing in the book. So, page one seven nine. This is a bit that is so poignant as a read, and something I can imagine that was hard to write for you. If you go from the words "the clinic." to the end of the chapter and we'll learn about the paternity test. The clinic phoned us individually a week later. The baby was his, they told me, even though the technology didn't yet exist to prove it 100%, but they could give us a 99% likelihood and that was enough to take the legal burden of proof beyond the shadow of doubt or the valley of death or something, something, words. It was actually the very same doctor on the phone and I could hear her hesitation at the end of the call, where professional boundaries seemed to be preventing her from asking if I was all right. I wasn't, as it happened. My milk had dried up for good the day after the paternity test, apparently due to stress. 
I hadn't been able to give birth to this baby naturally or give her a loving family home, and now I couldn't feed her either. It just seemed rude. But what did it matter? Because even though she said the baby was his, I now knew it wasn't true. That baby wasn't his at all. She was mine, all mine, and nobody else's. Still, the child maintenance payments continued to come into my bank account from his, in the strange monthly mechanics of automated nothingness. Sometimes they felt like a mockery. Sometimes they felt like an apology. Sometimes they just felt like a great big help that would let me pay several bills, and it was relief. The months passed into years, and the anger turned into pain, and the pain turned into a ghost that sat on my shoulder and flicked my nerves while allowing me to live. But after that day at the clinic, I didn't know if I would ever want to see him again. God. God. You write so amazingly. I mean, I know you know that already, but the way that you write is so... Because there's so much humour through it, when there's no humour, the seriousness of it and the kind of poignancy of it really is is so impactful. It's really strong. And obviously that is a real moment in your life of fucking panic and fear. And this realisation that your daughter is yours. And it feels like that to me is a turning point where you become the single mother, even though you have been for four months, psychologically, that is the day that you go, right, it's just me and you, babe. Like, Yeah, yeah. uh, Thank you for what you said. It it did then sort of become me and her against the world, which which can sound a bit aggressive, but, you know, we enjoyed the world. We had such fun in the world. Oh, no, but you say it so beautifully. Yeah, you write about it in the most lovely way. (laughs) What's that thing you say? We are a small republic of two, my daughter and I. Yeah. We are, we still are a small republic of two, but it's absolutely glorious. You know, I took her to school this morning and um, she asked me to put her water bottle in her bag. I mean, she's nearly 10 now and I am, whilst she was upstairs brushing her teeth, I thought, I'm just going to see if I can fit this massive plastic horse in her school. (laughs) I sort of wedged it in. I just, I don't know. Just our mornings are always really funny. We're always just like, who can prank each other the best? So then she puts her school back on. She's walking to school in a little grey uniform and a rucksack. And she was like, Mum, did you, did you put something in my bag? And I was like, no, babe, of course I didn't. She was like, it just feels, she was walking to school. She kept going, it just fit. Oh, can I take it off? And finally she got it. She like pulled open the zip and this massive oh my God. toy horse burst out. And she was just like, that's it. Tomorrow <laughs> it's war. <laughs> we just spend the whole time trying to make each other laugh, which usually works. So, um... You know, it, it, it really it really turned around, which I think the book does show. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that, about single parenting and the kind of things about single parenting that people don't think about or get wrong or misjudge the most. I can imagine you've you've been asked about it a lot since you wrote this book. But what are the things that you would say that people just don't get about being a single parent? I, at the start, kept thinking of all the things that, you know, I'd had a quite nice childhood and I kept thinking, oh God, you know, I grew up with a mum and a dad and a brother. She's got one parent, not getting any siblings. We lived in Yorkshire where you could have a house with a garden for not much money at that point, you know, in the 1980s. I was raising her in London where we couldn't afford to live like that. You know, we didn't have a any outdoor space. We were living on a council estate. All these things I kept thinking, I haven't given her a sibling. I haven't given her a dad. You know, I just kept thinking about all these shortcomings. And I ended up speaking to Philippa Perry, who's, you know, obviously a psychologist who writes about child rearing. And she said, none of those things matter if she has a really loving relationship with you, where when she makes a bid for your attention, about four out of five times, she can get it. 
And I kept saying, but we watch loads of telly. We don't go outside enough. We don't go outdoors. We don't go camping. And she was like, none of that matters as long, you know, as you two are okay. And I was always like, oh, we are okay, actually. And it took me a long time to go, oh, we've got everything we need. You know, it's fine to watch telly and eat takeaways. Like, it's, you know, it's fine. So it really was quite a turning point. And what I try to show in the book is that a lot of single parenting is fantastic, but because the narrative tells you it's not, you believe it's not. And that in itself, I think, led to me being a bit miserable and a bit down some of the time. You know, if we sort of went to eat in a restaurant as a treat and I'd look around at the other families around us in their sort of traditional nuclear units, or you'd see a couple on a date and it was like I was on a date with a four-year-old. And I'd keep telling myself, this picture is wrong. This picture is wrong. That's right. That couple, he loves her. That family where they've got three kids in the car outside, you know, that's that's the right way to do it. And then about halfway through the meal, there'd always be the bit where you could hear the other family having a total meltdown or the other husband, you know, asking, you know, the girlfriend on a date when she was going to sort of lose some weight. And you sort of think, oh, like, we're really happy, actually, you know, why do I keep looking at other people and saying our picture's wrong? Our picture is really lovely. And what's interested me, you know, people always say, oh, well, she's great now, but wait till the terrible teens. And when I talk to other single mothers of single daughters, of course, this doesn't go for everyone. Of course, some people have really stressful situations. But so many people have said to me, oh, no, we didn't have the terrible teens thing because we were so, you know, tight and we were so honest. And maybe because they didn't have anywhere else to go, they couldn't say, oh, I want to go and live with dad stuff you, you know, if that wasn't an option. Lots of the single moms have said to me, well, we didn't have that teenage thing at all because we were already grown ups. Mm. Wow, that's wonderful, isn't it? And that, that's you kind of say that in the book in the very last chapter there's this very beautiful scene of you just lying in the sea in Jamaica and kind of realising that all this time you felt like there needed to be more love. But actually, you have so much love between the two of you. that There's no... yeah, So much, so much love. And it's funny how you just, you know, I didn't think of myself as someone who was obsessed with how other people lived but it turns out that once the word mother can be sort of put on your body you just take on all this sort of cultural expectation that you thought you but were... also corporeal expectation like you know when you talk about that scene uh, the paternity test and, and you, you describe what you've been through for the last four months not being able to give enough Rest milk feed, not yeah, being able yeah, to get your body yeah. can't provide in your opinion at yeah. the time what the baby needed and you're yeah. told from every angle that the baby yeah. needs this from you there's a there always has to be the mother's milk and it's like why can't she have formula like why you know I, I look back now you know I went to these antenatal classes where it was really drummed into us oh a cesarean's really bad it's really bad you don't want to have that and of course I wasn't planning on that but I did have an emergency c-section got a breastfeeder for a hundred years well she ended up on formula oh that's terrible that's the devil you know you've got to have a loving family home where nobody smokes and nobody does this and you know it was so drummed into us even in sort of 21st century Hackney in East London, that we had to have all these things. Basically, every single rule they said there was, I inadvertently broke them. And when I look at her now, this kid who was, you know, born the wrong way, (laughs) fed the wrong way, dad walked out, you know, didn't have a garden, always having to watch telly because I was always on a work deadline and panicking and shoving CBeebies on again. You know, she's just great. I don't think any of it matters, Annie. I don't think any of it matters. Do you want Echo to read it when she's older? And how do you want her to feel about it? What's your dream? 
Yeah, so all the bad things I thought would happen that sort of didn't happen, like, you know, family disowning me or, you know, her father, I don't know, sort of, you know, breaking him that I did this. Um, All those things haven't happened. I can't say that she loves it because she hasn't read it yet. And I've signed her a copy and said not to be read till you're 15. And she's agreed to that, but she's nine. I can't, you know, there are copies in the house. I can't totally, I mean, she's not interested now, but, you know, if you were 13 and your mum had written a book and you were, you know, having a quiet afternoon nosing around, I can imagine you might have a look. Although I know that Catelyn Moran partly wrote her books wanting her daughters to read her life advice for women and she was gutted when they showed no interest. So maybe maybe that's what you say to, to your daughter. Yeah. Maybe you go, I'd really love you to read it, darling. Yeah. And she won't want yeah. to reverse do it. psychology. Yeah. Um it does hang slightly heavy on me, but the fact is the book, you know, on a sort of mercenary level, the book has done well I've just sold the TV rights to a really good production company. <gasps> what? I know. That's amazing. Well, oh my God. So I can't name any names, but I'm one of the people working on it, the script. So it's really exciting. And I just think, you know, we have been able to move to a slight, you know, we have wow. now got a garden. We have just in this year. Moved I know, to a house. you've got a house. Well, that's I what I feel so, like. I feel like it's, you know, when yeah. my daughter reads this and says, I can't believe you washed our dirty linen in public. I'm going to say, well, it gave us really good stuff, you know. <laughs> it gave us the holiday. It gave us the garden. It gave me a bit of time to spend with you. And also it touched all these other people who've got in touch with me. And it's really important to share our stories, I think. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Did you, writing this book, they say you write to know yourself. So like writing this Mm. book, you know, how did it change your opinion of yourself, if it did at all? I don't know if writing it did. I think when it came out and people, you know, because deep down you always, maybe it's just me, deep down you always think, oh, there's nothing interesting about me or my story or my pain doesn't count or my joy doesn't count or, you know, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? So all the way through writing it, this voice in my head would say, this is stupid, who cares? Which I sort of have learned that I think all writers have that voice and probably all creative people. And then to have it come out and to have so many people care was really, I think that changed me to go like, oh, you haven't been barking up the wrong tree. And the most interesting change for me is that my dreams have changed at night. I mean, my literal dreams. So all my life I'd had sort of anxiety dreams where I was in the wrong place and I was trying to get somewhere and everyone else knew how to get there and I'd go into the wrong room or they'd have a map and I didn't have a map or the, the landscape would shift or 
I had to get back somewhere and I couldn't get back there. And it was just literally all my life has been this anxiety dream that I'm in the wrong place. And now in my dreams, I'm in the right place. Come on. I know. (laughs) It's so extraordinary. I cannot tell you how relaxing it is to not wake up in the morning panicking that I'm in the wrong place. Wow. It's basically yeah. what you've done. It's therapy, isn't it? It's what they it is, encourage it people to do in therapy. It's like write down it your is. feelings it and is. then we're going to look at them. And your feelings happen to be a book. It is. And I know that some people get a bit precious, you know, if you describe art as being therapeutic. Because I've interviewed, you know, like you, I interview creative people for my sort of day job at The Guardian and for magazines. And I, you know, I say, oh, writing this art, you know, this album or you know, making this movie was just a cathartic experience. And lots of people get quite sniffy and they say, no, you know, therapy is therapy. This is literature. This is cinema. This is something else. But um, of course, therapy is therapy. But you can't write your life story and not not get something from it. So, um, yeah, I actually, all those years, I thought I can't write that because it's sort of going to keep me awake at night, you know, if I do that. And it turns out it's the only thing that helped me sleep. Wow. Wow, wow. So now we know how the book kind of changed you and your dreams. When you were writing it, did you have a kind of, did you have a ambition for the book to make the reader feel anything in particular or, or to, to kind of change the reader's perception about anything in particular? Well, it's a good question. When, I mean, because I had experience writing it, it was my debut book, but I'd written, you know, years and years of columns and interviews and sort of features for the media. So one thing that had happened, I'd written one column for The Guardian on a sort of similar topic that had probably led to this book. And somebody said to me when that ran, she said, oh God, it made me, you know, I was laughing and laughing. And then at the end of the same one page, I suddenly burst into tears. So how did you do that to me? And I thought quite evilly, but I thought, oh, oh, I like that power. power. <laughs> that's like, yeah. that's like a dark heart. And this wasn't mm. someone I knew. This was someone who picked up a newspaper in Manchester or wherever it was. Yeah. And I thought, I like the idea that your body sort of was laughing out loud and then was sobbing. It sounds quite twisted, but I was like, that's what I want. I want that Mm. over 70,000 words. Brilliant. (laughs) The extremes of emotions on one page. That's how it is. And that's why, you know, I maybe disagreed with my parents thinking I was sort of, you know, putting my life there to be laughed at. It wasn't that at all. It was that um, I think everything's funny you know death can be funny somebody walking out on you can you know you you know if your sort of girlfriend has a you know someone walk out on them and you know you get all the girls around and get drunk and commiserate by the end of talking about him you are all laughing you just are you know even though your friend's sort of desolate there is just something bleakly funny in everything and I don't think that's fake humor or sort of masking the pain with the tears of a clown or whatever I think I think things are both. All the time I find things sort of awful and hilarious. So so that is what I wanted to express. But also I wanted people to know that there's more than one way of making a family. I was sort of defending chaotic people and defending mums who haven't got it all together and sort of defending us against the kind of onslaught of picture-perfect lives. But what's funny is that some of those picture-perfect people have since 
said to me, oh, I've realised, you know, I'm a bit too controlling with my kids. That thing where you're in the bath with her and you're letting her make this sort of mad witch's soup and you've chucked in a bit of newspaper in a shoe. I'd I'd never let my, I've just realised I, sh- and I thought, oh no, I didn't write it sort of I wrote it to sort of excuse me yeah it's not prescriptive yeah it's it's not for everybody the way we live you know it's really really not for everybody you if you don't want to put tangerines and newspapers and shoes in the bar don't do it yeah yeah that's fine I'm not it wasn't a manual (laughs) so now that you've written it and I know you are or have been still interviewing People, I read your interviews all the time and your work all the time in the papers, but I did get yeah. an email auto-signature, Sophie Haywood, saying no more journalistic <laughs> commissions, which made me think, what the fuck is going on and what's on the horizon? Mm, is she writing I've something just, new? I've been commissioned to write book two, <gasps> the sequel, and also to write the TV script. So it turns out there is, <laughs> this train hasn't stopped. <laughs> so when you say book two, do you mean a sequel? Well... I went to the publishers going, so I've had this idea for a kind of fantasy novel involving this whole sort of other yeah, world. We and they were about that, yeah. Yeah, and they were a bit like, but people really liked the first one. <laughs> you know the way in the creative industries, people are like, that thing worked, why don't you do some more of that, <laughs> you know? And I was like, no, I'm going to do this whole kind of, you know, which I think I still do want to do. Maybe that's book three. But um, I did sign it as a two book deal. There was always the idea there was more to tell. And I am now, well, I said my daughter and I are still a Republic of Two, but actually my boyfriend lives with us now. So things have really changed in the past I mean, everything's year. That- changed. You've got a house. Two's turned into three. It's- I know. I've got this lovely live-in boyfriend. And actually, to be quite honest, I'm turning 45 soon. And this is the first committed relationship apart from my child that I've really been in. And I think people slightly gasp when you say that. They're like, oh God, what's wrong with you? And honestly, if someone else said that to me, I would think, what's wrong with that? Well, no, but you, you have, you, you have, as you say, you have a nine-year-old daughter. So you were yeah. busy for a while. Let's be honest, you had other things. But I would, well, one thing I'm working on is, you know, this may or may not become the main book, but um, it's sort of what it's like to, not to focus on him, because I think I've, you know, put enough people close to me <laughs> the ringer with putting their personal lives on the page but you know how how have we sort of become slightly I don't know not everybody has become out of love but there is this whole kind of market now for the single woman and that fleabag generation and now that I'm in a relationship and I'm having to unpick a lot of the assumptions I'd made about that and about loving and how to be loved. And, you know, you can tell yourself for years, oh, well, I get rejected a lot. Men leave me. You know, you can tell yourself this kind of tragic narrative. And I look at it now and I go, oh, it wasn't that at all, actually. It wasn't that they were leaving me. It was that I was completely <laughs> emotionally unavailable and, and what was going on there. And I think there's a bigger story to tell about all the things we get wrong about love. When I look at it now, all the wrong places that we look at for love and all the neuroses and all the things I used to go, well, that's a red flag and you can't be with him if he does that. And, oh, he said that it must be the end. And what was amazing getting sort of stuck with someone in lockdown, which is partly how, you know, kind of how my boyfriend and I consolidated our relationship was that we were just stuck there and we had to work through every single one of those doubts with no escape, we'd been thrown together in quite an unlikely fashion. And um, it was really interesting. I've had to unpick everything I thought I knew about love and everything I thought I knew about myself. It's been so interesting. 
Just to, to go back to the hungover games one more time, the idea of, you know, one of the first things you said in this conversation about your trepidation, your hesitation at writing the book being about other people and not wanting to offend them or feel like they might feel like they're misrepresented or, or whatever. It's so female, isn't it? You know, putting everyone else before you. Isn't it? And it, it's just so wonderful that you've just kind of said, you know what, this is my fucking story. And I own it and I've lived it and I've fought through it. And I am going to, I don't know, it, there's just something so wonderful about how you've claimed it, claimed your life. And what gets me is someone said to me, someone who was really against me doing it said, do you know what? It's just, you know, it's not fair on a man who's who's done what they've done, like for the sake of your daughter, not for his sake, but for the sake of your daughter, you know, you've got to be the bigger person here and sort of just keep a lid on everything and I thought you know it's only women who get asked to do that because it's women who stay and because in these situations where someone leaves 99 times out of 100 it is the man who leaves so there's all these stories we haven't heard of what it's like when the man leaves because women were always told to think of the children and I just was like no (laughs) I refuse I'm not going along with this pact that allows us to keep quiet anymore. Mm-hmm. And did you find that there was animosity when the book came out? Did anyone have a word about that when it came out? Did anyone have an opinion on that? I was really stealing myself for the worst. But I mean, people, you know, of course, have opinions behind closed doors that I'm possibly not privy to, but nothing to my face. No. And what's funny as well is in the book I talk about on a sort of, well, not a sillier note, but you know, I, I do come from a family who've always, always been there for me. They're very dependable, but they're not the sort of parents who say, oh, darling, we love you. You know, there's none of that sort of emotional chat. You know, nobody speaks about love or says, oh, well done. That's so, you know, it's just not that vibe. And um, after it came out, my best friends were all going, so, you know, surely your parents have now sort of read it. And I said, yeah, they have read it. They've told me they've read it. And surely they've now rung you up and said, but we love you. We always loved you. And I was like, <laughs> You don't get it, do you? Like, you don't write a book and make people change. Like, you know, people don't change. And perhaps part of the funniest thing about this book relating to change is that I thought it would change everything. And and in a way, it only changed me. You know, you, it didn't really change anything else at all. But you didn't I, even know you needed to be changed. And then the book changed you. And now you're like, oh, I, I mean, it's perfect. And it's funny thinking about, you know, your subject of changes, One thing I thought that would happen to me in my life, having always been kind of the youngest one in the family and a bit of a hot mess, you know, the one who'd sort of run out of money and phone my parents at an embarrassingly old stage of my life, sort of begging for help. Or I'd go abroad somewhere and get my purse nicked and lose my wallet and have to fight, you know, always sort of having these teenage disasters well past the age. When I, you know, in recent years, got it all sorted out. I wrote this book. It got into the bestseller lists. I've got this TV deal. I've got this lovely boyfriend. You know, I'm now living in this nice sort of Victorian house doing the nuclear family thing that you think that everyone's always wanted you to be. You know, I'm finally fitting in like a normal, boring, sort of married, respectable middle class person. And then I sort of went to my family this year, kind of like, ta-da, look Look at me me now. Finally, not the young, sort of drunk, hot mess anymore. And I just didn't really get that sort of response that part of me was still hoping for. And I realised it's because I had a role to play in the family dynamic 
as the sort of hot mess baby clown. You were the one that everyone did a little eye roll about. Yeah. Right. And, and if they can't, you know, they need me to eye roll at, otherwise they have to look at their own lives. And me becoming sorted and successful and financially solvent and turned out I'm, you know, perfectly attractive and lovable and normal. I, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think families necessarily want you to change in the way that you think they do. Yeah. God, it's so fascinating, isn't it? Like how you have changed, you know, in terms of your dreams and all of that, but also, yeah, how it makes you look at your relationships. Yeah. It's fascinating. So, Sophie, this new book, I wish you all the luck in the world in writing it. I hope that it feels as easy as pie. (laughs) I'm sure it won't. And I wish you a lovely period of time in your new house with your garden and your beautiful yellow flowers that I saw on Instagram. (laughs) They're so sweet. Thank you so much. Lovely chatting to you. The Hungover Games out now. If you have listened to this and you're curious to read it, go get it. And um, yeah, thank you so much, Sophie. No, thank you. Such a lovely conversation with Sophie Haywood. Uh, I really enjoyed that. And as I said, The Hungover Games is out now for your enjoyment. Do go get it, go read it and uh, let me know how you go with it. If you enjoyed this conversation with Sophie, please do like, subscribe, leave a comment on my Instagram and just share it. Send it to all your mates. It was lovely to hear from some of you last week after my conversation with Francisco Garcia about his book, If You Were There. Laura McDonald said, I loved this. Could have listened to you and Francisco chatting for hours have just ordered if you were there ross said great listen i have stopped on my way home from work and bought the book after listening to this today yes that's what we like um next week on the mother mother mini series it's the brilliant nikesh shukla with his memoir brown baby it's a raw heart on the sleeve study of two big changes in his own life the death of his mother and the birth of his daughters the book had me in bits when i read it and i've been so excited to talk to nikesh about his experience of writing about grief and the way that grief can colour every waking moment. Changes is produced by Frank Palmer. We will be back next week. Till then, take care. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.